these are the experiences that have not been told and must be told. And we have to do our job, all three of us here and, and everyone else that, that hears this, to push that narrative out there, to learn our history and to share it. Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Well, Mike, I just heard news that the Delta variant is causing some havoc in Broadway. Looks like uh, Disney's Aladdin at the New Amsterdam Theater had to close after its first day of opening. And you know how these Broadway producers are, man. So in order for them to make back their money, they have to sell out every day for like three to four years. Every day. That, it's an insane type of business model. I've invested in Broadway shows and I've gotten uh, very hurt because of it. I've lost money. So I'm never doing that again, but it's it, it's it's going to cost Disney a lot of money to not have these performances go on, but still rent these theaters, still pay these actors and not know when they're going to come back. But you're in the city. What's it like over there? I'm upstate. So to me, it's like a bubble. Like, I don't know what what happens on TV doesn't reflect where I am. But <laughs> over there in the city, man, what's the word on this COVID Delta? Are you going out? Uh, are you eating outside? Are you go to the movie theaters? Are you going to Broadway shows? Dude, first of all, let me just say, I'm not that interested or excited or ready really to just go out and be around people. I, I feel like it's too much of a risk. What What am I risking versus... What I'm gaining. Liberty and Please, freedom. Please, don't talk to me about liberty and freedom. But it's happening on Broadway is reflective of the industry and this country as a whole, as we always talk about here on the show. It's about making money. It's not about safety. It's like, okay, can we recoup these expenses? Yeah, can look we- at the Tokyo Olympics. They weren't supposed to happen, yet they did because of money. Exactly. Money, money, money. But it, because it rules everything, all of our decisions really, it's sort of top down. That That's why that happened. As they say, follow the money. That's why. So I see a lot of things right now. They're, they're, I'm getting invited to screenings. A screening only. No, no more links. So certain studios, uh, and and I haven't gone. I didn't go see two big films this week. Two big films that I really wanted to see because James uh, Bond, No Time to Die. Exactly, James Bond, No Time and, to Die, and Venom, and Venom with Woody Harrelson yes. and Tom Hardy. Woody Harrelson. So I say all that to say yes. We're trying to open, but but because of this split in the psychology of this society, you know, the Delta variant is not going to go away. Our viewpoint on vaccines in general has become politicized, and I don't mean, you know, Republican, Democrat, it's just politicized, the, the body politic. Humans are like protesting the idea that they would have to, I mean, they're having sit-ins. Hey, man, if I want to die on my own dime. I'm going to die without you. I don't need your permission to die. I'm going to die whenever I want to die. 
But but a year ago, a year and a half ago, where people are protesting civil rights for for people that are getting killed, black people, uh, people of color, and now what do we have? Sit-ins and let's storm Walgreens because we have to wear a mask. I, I, anyway, in the city here, yes, the neighborhood I live in, as I told you, it's as if there was never a pandemic to begin with. Wow. So, so uptown Manhattan, man, place to be. Well, you know, it depends on how you look at things. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, because it's Hispanic Heritage Month, and we, we discussed last month, you know, it happens in the middle of a month and in the middle of another month, and it's called a month, so it's more symbolic than it is an actual month. Um, I, I thought about the word heritage, so I looked it up, I, and, and I love to look up words. And I'm just going to read a couple things to you because it kind of springs words into the question I really want to ask you. So it says here, heritage. The first definition they have is property that is or may be inherited, an inheritance. And then it says, uh, going down, cultural heritage. Cultural heritage is the legacy of tangible and intangible heritage assets of a group or society that is inherited from past generations. A better definition. And this is the one that I really zeroed in on because this is from Merriam-Webster. This is their definition in Merriam-Webster of cultural heritage. Cultural heritage is an expression of the ways of living developed by a community and passed on from generation to generation, including customs, practices, places, objects, artistic expressions, and values. Now, that's kind of an all-encompassing thought considering Hispanic heritage encompasses so many peoples that would be considered Hispanic, mostly connected by language. So then I looked up, why is this still called Hispanic? I then read up Latinx. The first thing that comes up is an article that says Latinx is only used by 3% of Hispanics. What does Hispanic heritage actually mean to you? Like, what does that term mean to you? And then Latinx, what are your positions on that word and that term? How, how is that defining or not defining for you? Listen, man, it's just a label. It's a nomenclature that was created by the government. No one came up with that, but they said, listen, in the Nixon era, they said, look, if you guys can come up with a word, a term that can group you guys up, politically speaking, we can give you more money, we can give you more status, we can give you more of what you need for your communities to thrive. That's what happened back in the 60s, 70s. So... That's not like a like a movement like from Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta that they came up with and the people came up with it. This was a governmental term that was given to us. And September 15th, we started there is because most of the holidays or the Independence Days of Latin America happened to fall in the middle of September. Probably the most famous one is September 16th, which is the Independence Day of Mexico. I'm glad that it exists and that we can benefit from a lot of news coverage ever since September 15th. You know, I get a chance for mainstream to look at me. It's great. It's almost like having 
your Super Bowl Sunday, except that, you know, your Super Bowl Sunday is really like a Super Bowl month. And all of us Hispanics, you know, mainstream covers us. We're the topic of conversation. It's still going strong, which I'm very surprised about. Seems like Hispanic is clicking. So I like it for that. It, it's just the problem for me is what happens on October 16th? Why do we disappear? Why do we disappear? And, and that's the issue with me. Now, in terms of the word Latinx, I grew up when the Latinx didn't, didn't exist. So I remember when it first came out, and I remember I spoke to Ed Morales, the guy who wrote the book on Latinx, and I had him on my show. And we talked about the word and, you know, what that word means and, and how it's being taken. The word Latinx, it just means that for people that are non-binary, right? Like Demi Lovato, perfect example. She's a Hispanic, she's a Latina, and she just came out now saying she's a non-binary. So what does she call herself? Latina is not accurate. Latino is not accurate either. She's both. But people that are either Latino or Latina don't want her to have anything. Or, you know, just play with the word and, and, and use it when, when, whenever the contextually it's true. At some point, you don't want to do that, man. You don't want to think that much. Now, I, as a person who respects people and the way they identify, and if they want, they say, look, these two words, Latino, Latina, doesn't, uh, I don't like it. And the word Hispanic is just too stuffy, old, and, and governmental. I want something new. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't like the word Latinx, but they like the word Latin A. And that hasn't caught on as much as Latinx. So to me, if, you know, at that point, why don't you just use Latinx? It's not a slur. People are treating this like it's a slur. I think that most people that are Latino, like myself, when they're asked, where are you from? No one says Hispanic, Mike. Yeah, man, I'm Hispanic. Right. I've never heard of a person right. say, ah, uh, I'm that, a Latino. That's that's what I meant. Like, it's still called Hispanic Heritage Month. I feel like, well, how can Well, because they have to group all of us together so they can't go, ladies and gentlemen, we've arrived September 15th. It's the Argentine, Chile, Bolivia, Panama, <laughs> Colombia, Venezuela. Hold on. I got another 20 more to go. So, so Mike, you got to be able to group it in one word for efficiency. So you come up with the word Hispanic and no, nobody's bitching about it. Look, you got the National Hispanic, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. You got the Hispanic Federation. You have so many Hispanic organizations throughout the United States for the last 40 to 50 years. We're okay with it. No one's protesting with spears wanting to burn down these institutions. Why you got those spears in there, huh? What are you trying to say? So- so all I'm saying is that when we're asked where we're from, all we say is the country from where our parents are from, and then you add the American to make sure that you are from that country, but living the life in this country. So in my case, it would be Colombian American. My sister-in-law is Argentine American. My other friend is Venezuelan American. And that's what they say. Because at the end of the day, dude, all these people, what they want you to know is they want to zone in on what is the culture and language and the place and the location and the geography of where you are from. Because I've read books about it. I've seen movies on it. I have friends at bars that I've met, girls that I've dated from that country. What part? Because I can tell a little bit about you 
from that geographic location. I think I know you people. And that's what they want to know. But Latino doesn't mean anything to anybody. It's too broad of a, in a vague concept. Like when I say Latino, what do you think of? Jack Rico. No way. No. <laughs> what do you think of? And is your association with Latino white, brown? When I hear African-American, I, I, I see black skin. But when you hear Latino, what skin color do you see? We're Afro-Latino, we're brown, indigenous, and we're white Spanish. I, I think of a person who is brown. Yes, I think of brown. Yes. Indigenous yes, brown. Yes, I do. That, that, that's the stereotype that everybody has in their heads of that. And that's not our fault. That's what the world has taught us that a Latino is. Except that it's not just that. That's a partial truth of it. We're all sort of like thinking in this woke new world what would be the word that all of us can agree upon? And we still haven't found it, Mike. We still haven't found it. By the way, this whole thing brings me to the point of Latino invisibility. Because October 16th, no one's going to talk about us anymore for another year, unless something crazy happens. But let me tell you about this Latino invisibility that, that when we first spoke to John Leguizamo, he talked about something called psychosocial erasure. And it was this idea that American white mainstream is systematically removing us from all cultural references as if we live and exist, but in an ether, like in vapor or air, we're there and we need it, but we don't talk about, and that's us. And it's, it's disgusting, man. And to just kind of really prove the point, just a few days ago, the Tony Awards were on. By the way, they got like the lowest ratings in the history of the Tony Awards with only 2.6 million. But it seems like one of the best moments uh, for Latinos at the Tony Awards was when Matthew Lopez, who was one of the writers of uh, The Inheritance, and he had won the Tonys, and he was saying thank you to everybody. And then right at the end... Miguel Pinheiro, the first Puerto Rican playwright to be produced on Broadway. <laughs> who opened the door for me and who allowed me the opportunity to become a writer. This is the 74th Tony Awards, and yet I am only the first Latin A writer to win in this category. I say that not to elicit your applause, but to highlight the fact that the Latin A community is underrepresented in American theater, in New York theater, and most especially on Broadway. We constitute 19% of the United States population, and we represent about 2% of the playwrights having plays on Broadway in the last decade. This must change. We are a vibrant community, reflecting a vast array of cultures, experiences, and yes, skin tones. We have so many stories to tell. They are inside of us, aching to come out. Let us tell you our stories. Thank you for this. Thank you. Yeah, so, so Matthew, what he's really saying, and the reason he was in front of 
all the elite Broadway theater people, the elite of the elite is there. And he felt that he needed to do this. A Lopez man came on and started with Miguel Piñero. Because he's making a statement that that was the first guy that was ever produced on Broadway. And he's like the first person in a, to win in a play, for writing a play. The first Latino to write a play and win. In the history, which is like 100 years of Broadway. So what he's really saying is, we're invisible. We don't exist, yet we're 19% of the population. What the fuck is going on? What are you, you're gassing us. This is poison gas, metaphorically speaking, where you're killing all of our relevance altogether. And then, right when Matthew Lopez says this not too long ago after, a friend of mine sends me this, Instagram post from a guy named Hernán Otaño, who's an Argentine-American director who has directed several episodes of Power on Stars, the Power franchise. He's done two sequels plus Power. And he had this to take off his chest on his Instagram account. Let me read it out to you. As Raising Canaan's first season ends and Black Mafia's begins, I feel compelled to point out that other than the New York Post and New York Magazine, not a single mainstream media publication has reviewed either series. Not the New York Times, not the Washington Post, not the LA Times, across the country. Not even trade publications like The Hollywood Reporter and Variety. And to be clear, I'm not asking for positive reviews. If you don't like the show, shit all over it. That's fine. But to ignore them altogether, is to say that these stories, this work, these actors, this audience doesn't matter. And that's, we all know what that is. So as he's saying this, it reminded me once again how we're fucking invisible. We don't matter. He's saying it. He's like, our stories don't matter. The work doesn't matter. The actors don't matter. The audience doesn't matter. You don't cover it. It's like it doesn't exist. And that's a sad reality. That's a very sad, powerful reality. And then, Mike, just to reconfirm and reaffirm the invisibility aspect, I get an email um, of this place, this report that recently came out. It's called the Latino Corporate Directors Association Report. And they did their 2021 Latino board monitor, which tracks U.S. public company boards for performance. And the study found out that Latinos are the least represented on corporate boards. Yet, the whole population contributes $9 billion to the economy year over year. And today, only 47% of Fortune 100 companies lack a U.S. Latino on the board of directors. Bro, we're being systematically excluded and bypassed. And this is a major problem, Mike. If it's happening in corporate, if it's happening in art and culture, if it's, if it's happening in business, then what shot do we have? John Leguizamo talked about this, and I want you to listen to the audio once again. We've played it so many times, but it always comes back. He talks about something called psychosocial erasure. In New York, we're equal to whites in population. And less than 1% of the staff that New York Times, New York Magazine, anything with a New York banner. How is that possible? That's cultural apartheid. You know what I mean? That's, that's, it's called psychosocial erasure. 
that's what we lived through being a Latin person and a black person in America, but especially Latinx. We just the least represented minority in children's picture books when we're 30 percent of the United States public schools. How does a kid build his self-esteem? How does he build his self-love and his self-worth? never seeing himself represented in, in children's picture books. Then it keeps growing on as you get older and older, the lack of representation, the lack of seeing yourself in a, in a successful way. How do you project yourself? How do other people say, oh, you know, Latin people should be running this company. Latin people should be the, the New York Times editor. Because we should be. You know, where, where we have metrics, we fucking win. The psychosocial erasure. I, I thought about, you know, reading the heritage and, and just thinking about growing up and having heroes, having heroes, not just superheroes, but having heroes that you could look up to, historical people who have contributed to the world. Now, you you know, on the internet and, and, and social media, you can find out about so many things that we completely take for granted that, that people of color created, that were, they were ripped off on, that you never knew, they sold the patent, whatever. So many things. I mean, down to like the hairbrush. What kind of a nation would we be if we grew up knowing that our history was not erased? In a few minutes, we're going to go to our interview with Estuardo Rodriguez and is perfect for this month because it really talks about what it took for him to get the funding to create a place where we could celebrate the heritage of being Hispanic in this country and our contributions. Eduardo, welcome to the Brown and Black Podcast. Thank you. Very excited to be here with you guys. Well, congrats on your organization's significant victory of obtaining a House voice vote. Yes. Applausos, yes, applausos. Thank you. Uh, to create the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Latino. For those who are unfamiliar with the term, what exactly is a voice vote? And what are the next steps that need to occur to seal an official approval of this? So actually, uh, um, 2003, Javier Becerra, now aging California, Ileana ross Layton, now uh, no longer in, on, on Capitol Hill, but a, a board member of ours from the Friends of Latino Museum, uh, Friends of the American Latino Museum, um, they introduced the first bill to create a commission to study the viability of an, of an American Latino Museum. That bill, that, we got involved in 2005 officially as, as a group. Um, and, and focused on getting that bill passed. We did get that bill passed, and it's interesting because many people think it was passed under President Obama. It was actually signed by George W. Bush mm. to create a, a body that would study the, the, the possible creation of an American Latino Museum. They, did, they started their work um, uh, in 2009 and turned in a report in 2011 on Cinco de Mayo, um, perfectly timed, of course, and, and uh, that report laid out the plan. And you can find that report on our website, the AmericanLatinoMuseum.org. Um, and, and it lays out what it could contain, the missing stories of the Smithsonian, and of course, possible cost. Roughly $625 million is what they said back then in 2011. Since that time, we had been focused on passing the authorization bill, which is the National American Latino Museum Act, which just passed this week. Um, that bill uh, we had been working on since 2011, 2012. It's gone through two, three different Congresses. Uh, this is the fourth one. I'm very excited about 
finally getting that one through. So let me tell you, kids, it's it's a lot harder uh, to get a bill passed. <laughs> and of course, because of the, because of the elements of of what's happening in the country, um, you know what's happening in the partisanship. But I will tell you, this bill is tremendously bipartisan. It, it brings together uh, both sides of the aisle. So we can say we're a divided country right now for many reasons, but on U.S. history, which is what we try to focus on. This is the American story. 30 million tourists go to the National Mall every year, perhaps not in this environment, but they normally come from not just around the country, but around the world to learn about the, the, the nation, our, our origins, how we came together, why we are the strongest nation in the world, and to not have 500 years of history on the mall that explains the role, not just of the Spanish and the Mexican, but the Central Americans that actually worked and cooperated and supported and provided resources and food to George Washington's troops. I mean, nobody even talks about that. And there's a small exhibit, I'll tell you, if you get to the old Spanish residence in Washington, D.C., in the back, uh, this is on 16th Street, closer to Adams Morgan. You go to the back of that old Spanish residence, they have maybe 500 square feet of an exhibit showing how the Spanish supported George Washington. Nowhere else in the, in the, that's in the it. or the country will you see something like that. And, and those are the, just that's the tip of the iceberg of stories that need to be shared uh, of, of the Latino contributions throughout 500 years. And that's what we've been fighting for. And that's why we're excited that bill finally passed this week. Of course, we have the Senate, but we have a, a few minutes to celebrate uh, that we got that built through. I have a few questions. Um, you know, I, I only kind of came to the realization myself recently uh, that if you change history, you change the future. And, you know, you've been an advocate for history. You wrote a great article uh, in The Hill uh, that Latinos are not invading Texas. And you said that they settled here long before the Europeans landed on Plymouth Rock. And I'm just going to quote you for a second. You said, stories of trailblazing Latinos who have left lasting impacts on our history could fill volumes. And I'll just pause there. You know, uh, we as African-Americans, we have Black History Month. We have a few figures, you know, people know, you can name at least a half a dozen, Frederick Douglass, Harry Tubman, but a trailblazing Latino I would defy most people in this country to even name two. So how important do you feel it is not only to understand the history, but to really change history? You know, that, that article that, uh, that, that you're citing uh, came after the El Paso shooting, which, of course, um, it, we're coming upon that anniversary now. Um, you know, it, it's, an, it's an amazing story because people that kind of gloss over what happened assume some crazy person just um, you know, showed up in El Paso and, and started firing. But that individual drove over seven hours, went specifically to that place because of the density of the Latino community. A, a community there that, that did not arrive 200 years ago, did not you know, cross the water uh, to move to that area, uh, and didn't cross the border to move there yesterday. They have been there and they've always been there. Uh, uh, the idea in this madman's uh, head was that there, were, there was an invasion happening uh, you know, on the border and that if no one was going to do something, he was going to do something. Uh, had he understood his history, had our American classrooms focused on the history of that piece uh, of, of our country, that land, he would have understood the important um, you know, economy, um, business, society, arts, 
uh, community leadership that built El Paso in that area that made it what it is uh, today and, and, and the cross-border economy that's reliant uh, for all those people to have jobs and work. Uh, there was no invasion happening. It was basically just business as usual for the last 500 years or more. There are communities there that have lived in three different countries. Uh, my wife is from San Antonio and did her uh, ancestry and realized that at one point that piece of land where her family still is, was Mexico. Then it was the Independent Republic of Texas. And then it was part of Spain. And then it was the United States. That's history. We can't and should not ignore that simply because of the political rhetoric in the country that makes us believe that we're somehow less or that someone is invading us, uh, or, or that, that there is a hostile force trying to subvert the American flag. That's not accurate. What is, what is written, what should be written uh, in, in those history books is the accuracy of how we came to be, and, and that's missing on our national mall. And, it's, and it has tragic consequences, as we saw in El Paso. Estuardo, you know, when... When we talk about race in America, we're really talking about white and black for the most part. And Latinos, and it's been said many times, we're invisible. And that takes a hold on us, takes a hold on us uh, since we're childs. We don't see ourselves represented in any way. Uh, you don't read about our history and our contributions uh, in America. Why do you think that happened? What happened that the, our, our contributions were, for the most part, erased? And if you ask, like what Mike was saying earlier before, if you had to mention two iconic uh, Latinos in the history of America, people will have a hard time naming them. The Smithsonian in 1994 commissioned their own report um, on their museums and their exhibits, and they titled the findings Willful Neglect. It, the, the, the amount of, of effort that it took to, as you said, Jack, erase Latino history appeared to be intentional. That, that's why they called the report willful neglect. It was so obvious that there were moments in their exhibits and their narrative, they're shaping the American narrative for the 30 million tourists that go to all of those museums on the National Mall, that they had to have some intention to carve the story uh, in a way that left out American Latino contributions. So to a certain extent, I, I think that you answered the question yourself. There's an intentional erasing of that history. And perhaps there's just like, just like in, in mainstream media in Hollywood, sometimes it's because there's a, there's a, a misperception of, uh, of, of what that might do to the mainstream audience, whether they might like it whether they might find it, whether they would connect with it. And I think over the last 10 years, you've had moments, even in Hollywood, where people have realized that if you just dive in completely into a story, whether it's uh, Crazy Rich Asians, um, Black or, Panther, or, 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 or Black Panther, or, or Coco, these stories, uh, the more ethnic and cultural they are, sometimes are the ones that relate the most to a mass audience, but there's, there's, there's been a long history of that where you just feel like I need to appeal to a, broad, a broader audience and so let's just go with the white Anglo story. Um, I, I think that people will be surprised and the Latino community will be surprised. When you go into an American Latino museum one day, which, you, which we will, um, I, would be, I would be surprised if the Latino community 
themselves between the Puerto Ricans, the Dominicans, the Cuban Americans, um, and, and Peruvian Americans like myself. You go through that museum and you're going to be sitting there thinking, oh my God, I had no idea, right? Th these are the experiences that I think we're going to, these are the experiences that, that, that have not been told and must be told. Um, and we have to do our job, all three of us here and, and everyone else that, that hears this, to push that narrative out there, to learn our history and to share it. I go into the African American Museum and I had gone in there four times and I had never left the, the, the main floor because there's so much wow. to read. I know one day I will get through the rest of that museum, but just that main floor, it's, it's overwhelming, the, the amount of information. And that's what I hope that, that we're able to force through with a National Museum of the American Latino. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, you know, you, you said mainstream, and, and I, I think that I've always thought that that was an interesting term. So, you know, is it really mainstream or is it a side stream trying to control, you know, you only get this, so you don't know whether you'd ever like this. We know the answer but, to that, Mike. We know <laughs> okay, the answer yeah. to that. <laughs> but, but here's what I'm getting at. That resistance, there is an African-American museum, and, and that's the biggest one, and there are several. There is a Black History Month. The New York Times did a 1619 project, yet there are still lawmakers who are pushing to not fund a school if it includes any of that curriculum. What about the the other front? Because it's not just on the on the you know getting Congress and all the the quote unquote lawmakers to agree, but the pushback. How how do you get past that? How do you fight that the resistance? You know, it's interesting. I when the bill passed, and I've got a lot of friends here in D.C. who are doing amazing work and fighting the fight for dreamers, for immigration reform, voting rights, climate change, domestic violence issues. Everyone has their fight and, and everyone's pushing forward. And all of these issues at any point, I would say, are so much more valuable. And I, not to diminish what I'm doing, but everyone's got an important fight. And when the bill passed, I had a number of people reach out to me saying, congratulations, that's awesome. And, and, and you have to stop sometimes and, and appreciate the, the, the small victories as you move forward because we're pushing that train and keeping it moving. And then you, you realize that you're contributing to one piece of how to make our society better. So I don't see the American Latino Museum as this, as this four walls and a roof. That's not mm. really what the goal is. The goal is to help shape the narrative of yes. the nation, of, of the Latino community across the nation. When that building opens up and people are forced to see, of course, voluntarily, and some kids brought on field trips by force, but when, they're, <laughs> when they go into that museum, I've been on those field trips. Yeah, me too. Uh, we all have. <laughs> we have. <laughs> and you, you got out of class. Um, but, but when you go in that museum, you can't help but learn and absorb something. And hopefully Correct. that, even for the teachers that probably are not as interested, maybe, right? Hopefully that helps shape a narrative that they take back with them to Arizona, to the Southwest. And all that pushback around, let's not include Chicano studies, let's not include you know, all these other stories because that's too controversial. It starts to chip away at that. You know, there have been uh, individuals that we have worked with over the, over the years, um, the Mendez family, who, whose grandparents were part of the Westminster, Mendez versus Westminster, which was a case, a historic uh, Supreme Court case about 
uh, Hispanic, Mexican-American children being allowed to go to public schools uh, in California. Uh, that case is the precedent for Brown v. Board of Education. And very few people know that. And I met the family, uh, they, I met them over 10 years ago, and they were fighting to get that story into California uh, history books for the you know, public school systems. And, and they finally accomplished that. But that's just in California. We have to keep talking about that case. We have to have the museum so that public school teachers in, in, in Illinois and in Ohio, after learning more about that, come back and say, we need to include that case, that story in, in our history books. Because everyone knows Brown v. Board, but they don't understand what came before that. And those children were just as American. I think that we all have to do our piece and contribute to the whole. And this museum uh, is not going to just be a, a beautiful um, building with an amazing cafeteria. It's going to be something that is going to push back on that narrative state by state around the country. Wait, will it still have an amazing cafeteria, though? <laughs> it will have to Look, I don't even know where to Latino start. Latino food. I'm not yes. even sure. I'm not sure where we're going to have a yuca frita first. Or the, well, 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 too much. Or what? Yeah. Well, tamales, that's right. <laughs> Take some empanadas to go. There it is. Yeah. That's You're it. Like, My favorite every, museum already. Already. Well, let's talk some insider baseball here. Let's talk about some details. Uh, the National Museum of the African American History um, had a price tag of $500 million, uh, half of it paid by the federal government. The Indian Museum, a third of it was paid by the federal government. Who will be paying for the American Latino Museum? Will it be privately funded or where will finally the government pay what they should have been paying for years? Well, I was going to go to Oprah myself because I'm hoping she's got some <laughs> Panamanian or some Dominican background. She helped out the African American Museum. I'm like, come on, Oprah. Oh man. Um, yeah, no, I. Uh, we have we have followed the uh, the model, uh, the legislative model of the of the African American Museum. It's a 50 50 split. Um, very similar. Our commission that, as I mentioned before, that submitted their report in 2011, they estimated roughly $625 million. Um, that was 2011. The same thing that happened to the African American Museum. By the time uh, they actually put a shovel in the ground, you know, inflation and costs skyrocketed. So you know, that was a challenge. And we have, we have been in close contact uh, for many, many years um, with the African American Museum effort before they even put a shovel in the ground. So mm. there were a lot of sharing of, uh, of uh, best practices and, and mistakes that they learned from. So I've been very blessed um, to have their leadership. Uh, and, and in fact, um, you know, one of the first things that, that happened when we organized as a C3, uh, I met with uh, now Judge Robert Wilkins, and he gave me a stack of all their reports. Um, just to say, look, here's here's a roadmap, guy, and and we've been we've been grateful ever since. Um, so, yeah, a fifty fifty split was 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 key, uh, especially in, when you're going to Capitol Hill and asking for money. Um, we expect that by the time a shovel goes into the ground, inflation will be what it is, and will likely be around a seven hundred million dollar price tag. So, you know, we consistently tell uh, the public and anyone with deep pockets that uh, we need to raise three hundred fifty million dollars, and and that money needs to simultaneously uh, build so that we can make the argument that we will step up as a community. Uh, corporate America has has a n number of 
uh, a number of times uh, reached out to me, uh, companies that have helped the African American Museum have reached out to me to say, let us know where you are in the process and, and we'll be there. Now, not, I'm, not just, I'm not trying to suggest that we're, we're already there, but I am suggesting that there's interest and others should follow. And the community in particular, 60 million strong, give me three bucks each. Come on, and we'll, we'll, we'll make it, we'll make it there. Uh, but we got to put skin in the game. We got to put skin right. in the game here. We can't, you know, people have reached out and said, great job, great job. And few of them say, sign me up. Let me know what I can do. And that's the part of the email and the phone call that I appreciate the most. Because that's the only way we're going to get this done. Um, my amazing team and my board, our board chairman, wonderful people. But we're not going to get it done just by ourselves. We have to get it done with the community. Well, you know, you're, you're mentioning something there I think is very important. And, and that is uh, unity. And, and, you know, it's part of why we do the show. Uh, and it's very encouraging, like you said, to hear that, you know, the African-Americans are trying to help the Latinos do the same thing. You know, like we're, we're fighting the same battle. We've both been erased from relevance, from history. You know, you were mentioning how, uh, you know, your friends, the, the people you consider to be colleagues are all fighting for all these things that should just be, obviously they help humanity. Hello, but you're up against, you know, all the things that have been passed by this administration are not things to help humanity. They're things to help corporations. You mentioned also unity with the community. And if it's okay to, for you to weigh in, you know, the community sees itself a certain way, but if people are who are in a position disregard the community, let's and you know I'm talking about Goya. How do we unify? How do we work around that? Because that, in my opinion, has to fracture a certain amount of unity within the Latino community. I, I think in in this environment, um, you know, we have found more than enough opportunity to divide, to pick our side. Um, and especially when it comes, you know, to, to companies, um, you know, I won't, I won't you know, give an opinion on, on Goya as much as I will say that in the last 15 years that I have not just worked on Latin Museum, but also, yeah, my other hat is as a government affairs, um, communications consultant. And along that, along that path, you know, I've worked with many companies. It's interesting to me that when I first started doing that work, I had to explain to a company why the social good and the engagement with black and brown communities was important and valuable. And then just this last year, you saw uh, the George, George Floyd Policing Act that was introduced by the House. And over 600 individuals and companies signed on, sent a letter to Congress saying, we must pass this bill. Whatever the reason was that the companies had, there were iconic brands that signed up and said, yes, we have to do this. And so for me, it was amazing because we've come a long way where companies now are starting to realize it's much more than just the profit. You have to take care of the people that take care of you, the consumers that are showing up and buying your products and loyal to you. If they go away, you go away. And the companies are realizing that they have right. to have some value. They have to stand for something. Where are your values? And this last year, if not the last three or four years, they've had more than enough opportunities to take a stand for values. Now, some haven't. 
And I'm not going to give an opinion on that. But those that have, I think, are, are, are sending a stronger message that we can no longer go around as a business as usual. We have to come together and, and stand with our values. And, and I hope that that's something that will continue to grow as opposed to go in the other direction. Was there ever any consideration of naming the museum the Latin X Museum or the Hispanic Museum? I mean, we've been through so many labels and so many terms. How did we end up with American Latino? Because I, for one, have never truly uh, identified myself as an American Latino. I might have said U.S. Hispanic or Colombian American. No. What was the discussion about this? And finally, who? Uh, how did you get this, the American Latino name? Do you, do you have a question, Mike, for me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to take it now. I'm happy to take it right now. <laughs> oh, man. Jack. Um, look, it, I, I, maybe this is a controversial thing, um, but... I think the, the beauty of the um, African-American Museum is that it starts in a, in a unifying point. There's, there's, a, there's a central uh, trigger that everything spirals out of. With the American Latino Museum, we're not going to necessarily have that. Our central point will be cultural. Uh, which we can go on and on about what that means and, and how people identify through language, food, family, et cetera, right? And, and of course, you know, dance. But the, the unifying points or the nucleus you know, come from all over. You have got the Spanish, you've got the Central Americans, the South Americans, you've got the Mexicans that have always been there. You have the Tainos, the native uh, people of Puerto Rico, um, and, and and so many other you know little points around the Southwest where our people always were, <clears throat> right? What I've said many times to to as I go to you know Chicago or, or LA, Miami, you have to know who your audience is before you start talking about an American Latin museum, because in Florida people will say, oh, it's going to be a Mexican museum. Right. Or if I'm in the if I'm in the Southwest, people will say you're trying to justify the, the Spanish atrocities. Right. And then along that path, someone will slap me on the wrist for you know, not talking about the Tainos or the Afro-Latinos uh, or the Asian Pacific Islander Latinos. Right. So so it's so varied that my only response has been let us come together to get into the museum. Once we're inside, as we say in Spanish, ahí nos peleamos. We'll fight it out then. My job is to get the legislation through and get the building done. And then the Smithsonian Latino Center that currently exists and is working on a 5,000 square foot gallery just to tease out what the museum might look like. They have the curators to bring it all together. But it will absolutely be hard. It will absolutely be a mess to get all of this sorted out. We have to start from somewhere, but my guess is that it's going to be segmented. You have to start with the, the history of the Southwest and then the pieces of Florida. The fact that the Spanish did uh, establish the first city in, in, uh, in the United States, right? Those, those stories are going to come 
together. Uh, you know, I don't know how many times you've seen those movies where the movie starts and there's seven different people totally disconnected. And in the last five minutes of the movie, they all come together in some craziness, right? And you're like, oh my God, <laughs> that's our museum. You have these stories totally disconnected that somehow come together in the last five minutes of your experience there. And you realize that it was all a, a perfect, perfectly balanced uh, narrative that, that created the Latino experience in this country and contributed to its an amazing growth. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't, I, I can tell you this, uh, even though I've gone long here, when I go to um, California, I don't say Hispanics. Um, I, I intersperse in there in the Southwest, the word Chicano. Um, and when I'm talking to a younger demographic, I'll say the Latinx, which is a whole other controversial piece, right? Because not everyone agrees with that at all. But, but there's a segment that, that does. And we have to acknowledge people. We have to validate them. If they see themselves as a, as a Boricua over uh, a Chicano or, or, or Latino, then we have to talk about the Boricua experience. And the Borinqueneers, the high, most highly decorated uh, battalion. Um, these are these. We have to find ways to relate, and at, and at the very least, give people space to disagree. Um, we went with the American Latino Museum because at that time we felt that was the safest way. I still get emails criticizing the name all the time, and I thank them and I appreciate it, and I tell them, "Help me get this done." And then once we're in there, I nos peleamos. Wow. Uh, I have to say, everything you're saying is sort of a, a, like a metaphor for everything you're saying in that the problem, the problem with the Latino in America is that is just that, that they're not unified. The whole idea to me sounds like the idea of the museum is to unify. To make the museum, you have to unify. If you go to the museum, you'll unify. Right. So it's all about unification. And uh, most importantly, it's about identity. So can you speak a little bit about how history creates identity and potentially into the future? I, I went to, uh, I went to a, a conference uh, about a year ago or so, and it was um, a room full of Latino attorneys, Latina, Latino attorneys from all over the country. Um, and we were talking about, uh, about the bill, and I said to them, if I say... Cuantos Puerto Ricanos? I'm sure there's a segment that's going to lift, lift up their fists and be like, ooh, Puerto Ricans, right? And I say, if I, if I yell out, cuantos peruanos, cuantos venezolanos, cuantos colombianos, everyone's different pockets across the room are going to cheer. But then if I say, cuantos americanos, how many Americans in the room? People are going to be like, uh, right? They're going to be stuck. But why? Why are we stuck? Right. We, we do segment ourselves. We do talk about the, the arepa over the Peruvian empanada, over the pupusa from El Salvador, right? We do, we do identify with our, with our origin, and then we hold on to that and refuse to also embrace. We have fallen into that trap where we see as... We see, as you said, uh, Mike, that mainstream. What is mainstream? We have fallen into the trap that the mainstream doesn't like us. So we're Peruvian American, not American, or and American. 
we have to be able to stand up ourselves and say, when someone yells out, "Cuántos Americanos? Raise your hand, hoot and holler. Because you are. And because your, your relatives that are, are, are driving local economies, creating the, the fastest growing segment of small business among Hispanic women, fastest job creator, small Hispanic businesses, right? But yet we hesitate to embrace the, that, that American identity for fear that we're somehow you know, working against our own people and, and we're not. So that identity piece has both been created by, the, by us and also imposed on us. And that's the piece that we have to break out of if we're really going to come together. Should be no, it, it, there should be no question that you can have a Peruvian origin but be fully American because that's what America is, diversity. That's it for this 59th episode of Brown and Black. If you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Toronto. Next week, we'll be rebroadcasting our interview with none other than actor and comedian John Leguizamo. You can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcasts on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black.